It is beyond our powers to know or tell about the birth of the other gods. We must rely on those who have told the story before, who claim to be the children of the gods, and presumably know about their own ancestors. Timaeus by Plato. Chapter 3 Evidence of an Unknown Antediluvian Civilization. I shall leave the reader to decide whether a civilization existed prior to the flood. However, there does seem to be a preponderance of evidence that makes this a possibility worthy of some consideration. Mythology today possesses the connotation of a false or fictitious narrative. However, these stories have passed down from the earliest of times, generation after generation. Many of these have survived from centuries before Christ and have been imprinted upon our psyche and formed, at least in part, our religious systems of today. Can we therefore wave them aside and dismiss them as inconsequential and fictitious? Among the mythologies discussed in chapter 2 were global accounts of a great flood where a number of people, in particular from an island, survived and arrived on the shores of inhabited nations before influencing these natives in spiritual matters and assisting in the development of culture, the erection of large structures and enhancing agriculture. The flood is, of course, best known from the biblical story of Noah in the book of Genesis. But it is interesting to know that it is also included in the mythology of as wide a group of nations as the Sumerians, Babylonians, Chinese, Indians, Indonesians, Australians, Greeks, Germans, Irish, Finnish, Maya, Aztec and Hopi, to name but a few. Yet the flood is officially scientifically unproven and remains unacknowledged by the scientific fraternity. It probably occurred at the end of the last Ice Age, approximately 10,500 BCE or thereabouts. This may be why, as mentioned in the last chapter, the positioning of both the Sphinx and the pyramids at Giza mirror that date. Possible evidence for a global flood, sometimes attributed to Noah's flood, is the Black Sea, which is located at the southeastern extremity of Europe. It is contended that the Black Sea was initially a freshwater lake which some 8,000 years ago was abruptly transformed into a saltwater sea, increasing its size by some 30% due to a prehistoric flood. The cataclysmic event replaced some 60,000 square miles, twice the size of Ireland, of populated land and raised the water level by some 500 feet. This was due to the Earth becoming warmer after the end of the Ice Age and the ice over the Northern Hemisphere melting as a result. Oceans and seas consequentially increased by volume. This resulted in the Mediterranean Sea swelling and its saline waters pushing through the Bosphorus with 200 times the force of Niagara Falls. The human settlements on the banks would have flooded and displaced the terrified survivors who would have recounted the tale of this great flood. The evidence for this contention was derived from core samples taken from the once lake bed, which showed evidence of an abrupt change from freshwater variety of life to saltwater. There was also sonar evidence which showed plant life, indicating that the area was previously exposed to the air and also that of a more ancient shoreline. 
Those who disagree with the theory suggest that over millennia, salt water has trickled into the Black Sea from the Mediterranean Sea. However, erosion at the entry point of the Black Sea from such an explanation would produce a channel of erosion which curved to the right due to the rotation of the Earth. Sonar images have provided unambiguous evidence of erosion inclined to the left. Such a force against the Earth's rotation would indicate a much more catastrophic event. Author Bill Bryson, in his book A Short History of Nearly Everything, writes about the extreme changes in the Earth's temperature from hot to cold in approximately 10,000 BCE, creating the conditions for a great flood. He suggests that towards the end of the last big glaciation, some 12,000 years ago, the Earth began to warm up quite rapidly, but then abruptly plunged back into bitter cold for a thousand years or so in an event known to science as the Younger Dryas. At the end of this thousand-year onslaught, average temperatures increased again by as much as four degrees Celsius, which is equivalent to exchanging the climate of Scandinavia to that of the Mediterranean in just two decades. What is particularly disconcerting is that we have absolutely no idea what natural phenomena could so dramatically and swiftly affect the Earth's temperature. Whilst it is contended that the dynamics of glaciation, the movement of glaciers themselves, explains the fact that boulders have been found in places from which they obviously had not originated, such as, for example, giant granite boulders on the limestone flanks of the Jura Mountains of the Alps, it is also feasible that the effect could have been due to massive floodwaters scoring away the sides of mountains. J. Douglas Kenyon, in his book Forbidden History, describes this further when he states... More horrifying to 19th century scientists than the evidence of water damage and silting were the gigantic boulders exposed in public view all over the European countryside, in places where they did not belong. These oversized rocks, many weighing thousands of tons, could have been moved only by massive floodwaters carrying them along and then depositing them when the waters receded. The movement of these rocks by the floodwaters would have been, in part, responsible for the aforementioned mountainside scoring. Kenyon goes on to suggest that the glacier theory did not explain why giant boulders were found in desert regions where no glacier could possibly go. In addition to which, he says, glaciers are flows of ice that, like rivers, respond to gravity. Glaciers do not climb hills and do not travel across level land. Found with woolly mammoth deposits were the remains of exotic animals, insects, birds and vegetation, which could never have been local to where the glacial drifts were found, suggesting that all had been caught up in whirlpools, mixed together and deposited wherever the water settled. There was also such a mix of bones and plant life found deep in caves, a process that could have only occurred if it had been carried into these crevices by the recession of massive floodwaters. If recent finds, large submerged structures off Japan's Yonaguni Island and India's Bay of Cambay are proved to be man-made sites, sunken cities, the fact that these sites lie below the existing water level would go to supporting, even proving, the occurrence of a flood and that potentially advanced societies existed before it, antediluvian civilizations in fact. Whilst ancient cultures across the globe spoke of an island submerged by a deluge from which the survivors escaped to new shores, it was the Greek philosopher Plato who in the context of Western philosophy first discussed such an island. 
This island he named as Atlantis, and it is written of in his text Timaeus and Critias. Listen then, Socrates, this story is a strange one, but Solon, the wisest of the seven wise men, once vouchsafed its truth. Solon came there to Egypt on his travels and was highly honoured by them, the Egyptian high priests, and in the course of making inquiries from those priests who were the most knowledgeable on the subject, found that both he and all his countrymen were almost entirely ignorant about antiquity. And wishing to lead them on to talk about early times, he embarked upon an account of the earliest events known there, telling them about Pheronius, said to be the first man, and Niobe, and how Deucalion and Pyrrha survived the flood, and who were their descendants. Our records, the Egyptian high priest said, tell how your city, Athens, checked a great power which arrogantly advanced from its base in the Atlantic Ocean to attack the cities of Europe and Asia. In those days the Atlantic was navigable. There was an island opposite the strait, which you call the Pillars of Hercules, or the Strait of Gibraltar today, an island larger than that of Libya and Asia combined. From it, travellers could in those days reach other islands. On this island of Atlantis had risen a powerful and remarkable dynasty of kings, who ruled the whole island and many other islands as well and parts of the continent. Socrates later comments on the account of Atlantis. A great point in its favour is that it is not a fiction but a true history. The book and the account go on to describe the island of Atlantis in great detail. A great deal has been written of Atlantis and a lost civilization over the years. Might there be evidence to be found of Plato's account of this island being in the Atlantic Ocean in the similarities of the temples on either side of the island from which the inhabitants fled? Certainly the Maya described in the Purple Vu how these people came from the east. Might the arrival of the individuals in Egypt mentioned earlier have been from the west? Surely it cannot be coincidence that the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan in Mexico and the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt possess the same base measurements, nor mere chance that the same 43.5 degree angle was adopted by two pyramids, one at Teotihuacan and one at Giza. This angle is an adaptation of pi, as in the theorem attributed to Pythagoras, but some 2,000 years before his birth. If such a civilization did exist and was destroyed by a deluge with its survivors fleeing to foreign shores as described by many ancient cultures, then let us take an evolutionist standpoint for a moment and consider the overlapping of the different stages of the development of mankind. For instance, that Homo sapiens coexisted with Neanderthal people. Eric Trinkhouse of Washington University announced that a skeleton of a child who died some 24,000 years ago, found in Portugal in 1999, was a hybrid and proof that modern humans and Neanderthals interbred. Might we, Homo sapiens, then not have overlapped with the Atlanteans had they existed? There are certainly descriptions of this in Greek mythology as found in Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod lived in the 8th century BCE, and the Theogony is the earlier of his two surviving poems, and contains a systematic genealogy of the gods from the beginning of the world. It speaks of mortals interacting with the gods, and bearing children resembling the gods. Another account is given in mythology by C. Scott Littleton, which refers to the giant invaders of ancient times in Peru. It states, 
The peoples of coastal Peru inherited legends of ancient invaders. These were giants where the heads of ordinary men would come up to their knees, and their eyes were the size of plates. The giants were loathed because they forced the native and human population to submit to them sexually. There is similar reference to this in the Bible in Genesis 6-1, when it states that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. It goes on to say, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. We also find within the book of Enoch from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it states, And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, and saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. We also find in the Zohar, the book that lies at the heart of Kabbalah study, and which is discussed in greater detail in chapter 5, we find a similar account when it states, When Yuza and Azael fell from the abode of their sanctity above, they saw the daughters of mankind, and sinned with them, and begat children. Returning to Plato's Timaeus, in the context of this overlap, we find the Egyptian high priest speaking to Solon, when he says, You Athenians, remember only one deluge. You and your fellow citizens are descended from the few survivors that remained. But you know nothing about it because so many succeeding generations left no record in writing. Indeed, within the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it mentions that the priests of Ra claimed to have the veritable blood of Ra, and they asserted that their high priests were the offspring of Ra by human mothers. The belief that Ra came down from heaven and was united by mortal woman. As I stated in the previous chapter, from the same book, collectively they were known as the Kemenu, or the Eight, and they were considered as primeval fathers and mothers. A further source, also mentioned in the previous chapter, was Bishop Las Casas in his commentary on the Mayan Popol Vuh. He writes, The Maya believed that certain persons who escaped the flood populated their lands, and they were called the Great Father and the Great Mother. Should this have been the case that modern humans interbred with these refugees, the gods as described often by ancient cultures, these displaced foreigners who arrived on their shores, then perhaps their contribution to ourselves as a species as we exist today is consciousness a most human characteristic which cannot be derived by natural selection and indeed cannot be devolved. It seems to me that consciousness, much like altruism, belies the fundamentals of Darwin's theory of evolution. Charles Hapgood and his ancient maps also give further evidence. In the last chapter on the maps of the ancient sea kings, Hapgood comments, when I began this work, I was aware of no definite evidence of an advanced ancient civilization, though I was aware that others believed it had existed. Now I have found in the maps evidence that I accept as decisive in answering this question in the affirmative. Hapgood goes on to mention that several myths were brought from legend into reality, such as Babylon of Mesopotamian mythology in 1811 by Claudius Risch. Champollion, solving the problem of Egyptian hieroglyphics, returned Egypt to the forefront of historical study. And Troy, discovered by Schliemann, which was previously thought not to have existed, gave substance to the myths of Crete. He goes on to ask, but is this all? 
Is the process at an end? Are there no more lost civilizations waiting to be discovered? This would be contrary to history itself if this were the case. He maintains that the ancient maps appear to suggest the existence in remote times of a true civilization of a comparatively advanced sort, some 20,000 or more years ago, where the Paleolithic peoples were living in Europe and that we have inherited a part of what they possessed, passed down through generations. He further suggests that the idea of a simple linear development of society, from the Paleolithic through the successive stages of the Neolithic, Bronze and Iron Ages must be given up. Today we find primitive cultures coexisting with advanced modern society on all continents, such as the Bushmen of Australia and South Africa, and truly primitive peoples in South America and New Guinea. It is not only the inference of the maps that denotes an advanced knowledge and civilization, but there is also the Kirscher map of 1665. The Kirscher map of Atlantis places Atlantis between Africa and North America. The map was taken from Egypt by the Romans, probably in 30 BCE, and on this map is inscribed in Latin, the site of Atlantis, not beneath the sea, according to the beliefs of the Egyptians and the description of Plato. The map shows Africa and America on the wrong side of the island of Atlantis. This is because to the Egyptians, north is south. That is, Lower Egypt is Northern Egypt and Upper Egypt is in the South. This therefore lends to the veracity of the map. Lewis Spence, in his The History of Atlantis, points out that absence of documentary proof is not an argument for not accepting Plato's original description of Atlantis. He states, The bare idea of Atlantis as described by Plato has been met with derision by generations of archaeologists, simply because no direct documentary evidence relating to its existence survived. But can one reasonably expect direct documentary evidence of a civilization which totally disappeared more than 11,000 years ago? It is manifest that another kind of proof than documentary must be drawn upon to justify the existence of such a culture. My personal view is that there is compelling inference based on cultural diffusion, mythology of antiquity and geological anomalies that point certainly to a great flood or deluge and also the existence of an antediluvian civilization. Again, in summary, we find that there is some physical and archaeological evidence to suggest that there was indeed a flood, despite the fact that the scientific fraternity does not officially recognize the existence of such an event. We also find that there is widespread evidence from ancient cultures of not only a flood occurring, but also of survivors from it populating their lands and becoming intimately involved with their population.